0: The other hand is part of the ACAST Creator Network.
1: Hello, Chris. Good to talk. Um, an interesting week around the world. We got major interest rate decisions from the US Federal Reserve, from the European Central Bank, and indeed uh, a significant statement from the Bank of Japan in, in relation to how it manages its, its yield curve. We've had French spanish and german and us growth numbers out um, sending out a pretty mixed picture of what's going on in terms of economic activity we had the latest economic forecast from the international monetary fund uh, this is the july forecast the last forecast was in april so it is always interesting to see how bodies like the imf evolve their forecasts over time so i think that's worth a some discussion And I think the other story revolves around banking. Um, This morning, we had first half profits from AIB, um, one of the big two banks in a two and a half banking market here in Ireland. Um, A very strong profit performance. So let's dig into that to see exactly what's happening. Uh, But there was a story in the Financial Times earlier this week about how banks in Europe have passed on the interest rate increases to depositors. And there's some really, really interesting stuff there that has been largely, as far as I can see, ignored by the Irish media, which I think is quite extraordinary if that is the case. Uh, There's a big story there that I think um, warrants quite a bit of discussion. Uh, But starting off on the interest rate front, um, a pretty predictable week in many ways. Uh, the US Federal Reserve increased rates by a quarter of one percent it's now in a range of five and a quarter to five and a half percent um, I think that's the 11th increase from the foMC the Federal open Market committee since March of last year pretty dramatic stuff um the I guess after these interest rate decisions always one of the more interesting things to look at is the nature of of the statement and the comments that are made afterwards. And there's certainly a suggestion in the United States that the chairman has not ruled out further tightening of policy, but is starting to believe that um, interest rate levels are sufficiently restrictive at the moment. But I think it is the case that the Federal Reserve is just going to sit back and see how Data evolves over the coming weeks ahead of the next meeting. Before making any decision on where rates grow go from here, um, in Europe, the European Central Bank increased rates by a quarter of one percent, um, exactly a year to when it started tightening policy. And over that twelve-month period, we've seen rate increases of four and a quarter percent delivered, which is a pretty dramatic tightening of monetary policy in such a relatively short period of time. Um, The statements and the comments afterwards from Christine Lagarde um, certainly attracted some market interest because um, there was a slight, I think, watering down of the very bearish comments that was made um, at the last meeting when rates were also increased by a quarter of 1%. Uh, but yesterday she said that BCB will ensure that interest rates will be set at sufficiently restrictive levels for as long as necessary. What that appears to suggest is that they're certainly not adamant as they were a month ago that there will be another rate increase and that rates you know, could well remain at these elevated levels for some time. Um and the markets took that really as an indication that perhaps we've seen the top of the interest rate cycle. I tend to disagree slightly. I, I think it is still all up in the air. I think the European Central Bank, like the Federal Reserve, will be watching the data over the coming month or so. And I think there's three areas that are of particular interest. One is obviously what's happening on the inflation front and particularly with core inflation, which excludes food and energy. Uh, we, in the last couple of podcasts, have discussed the risks to headline inflation at the moment emanating from energy prices, largely being driven by what's happening in China, and secondly, food prices largely driven by Indian bans on rice exports, but more particularly the very, very targeted way in which uh, Russia is now drone attacking grain silos, both in Odessa and along the Danube. We spoke about that in the last podcast, Uh, but also, of course, in the last couple of weeks, we've seen the end of the Black Sea grain deal. So so, so that's the second thing the European Central Bank will obviously be watching to see how inflationary pressures evolve. And thirdly, it's obviously, I think, what's happening on the labour market front. I should probably never use the word obviously, obviously. When one is talking about how a central bank interprets the world but it's the tightness of labor markets and particularly the way that's feeding into service sector inflation that i think will be a key focus so i think the bottom line in the context of the united states and the european central bank is that you know they appear to believe they're approaching the top of the cycle uh, but it is still too early i think to call an end to the tightening and the other point i suppose is even if this is an end to the tightening um it could be some time before central bankers would feel sufficiently comfortable to start easing policy again
0: i think jim that what you've just said is all 100% correct and what i take from what you've just said is that they are in data watching mode and that they are in reactive mode rather than trying to anticipate what's going to happen next. They're going to see what happens, particularly to the headline and core inflation numbers, but also the wider economy. And that's very understandable because they got it so wrong when they were in forward-looking mode. We know that debate that you and I have had over the last couple of years, team transitory, all that kind of stuff. But it raises a very obvious question. If they've given up on looking forward, which from what you've just said, which I think is 100% accurate, I think they have, that they are simply going to say, okay, if the data suggests that the economy is too strong and still generating inflation pressures, we're going to put rates up again. If the data comes in and says that the economy is softening and inflation is coming down, or maybe if the data just says that no matter what the economy is doing, inflation is coming down all of its own accord, which is what I think is what's happening. The, the question, slightly tongue in cheek, but seriously, is what's the point of all of that forward looking effort? What's the point of all that economic forecasting that these central banks engage in? Because they clearly have decided it's not worth the paper it's written on. And that therefore, they just simply are going to sit there and say, well, if this happens, we're going to do that. And if that happens, we're going to do this. Uh, do you think that we are in a new era of central banking where we no longer need economic forecasts and therefore we no longer need economic forecasters?
1: The market view would be that language matters and every word and syllable issued by central banker after these rate decisions are indeed um, the whole time when central bankers speak at various events. There's a huge focus on the language used and certainly, as I say, the market view would be that language matters. Uh, but at the end of the day, that's probably bullshit. You know, central bankers will say whatever they want to say at a point in time. But as as you say, the European Central Bank particularly has got spectacularly wrong over
0: the last 12 months. Over its lifetime, Jim. Uh,
1: okay, over its lifetime, yes. Jesus, you're very uncharitable, Chris, but you're probably correct if you go back to what Trichet did back in 2011, for example, with that tightening. That was just another example. But yeah, I mean, I, I, I think... We watch the data, and I think that's more instructive for us as observers rather than what central bankers are saying and doing. Um, does it mean the end of economic forecasting? No, central banks will continue to forecast.
0: With one very important caveat, because one of your favourite sayings on this pod, Jim, is the mantra that monetary policy affects economies with long and variable lags. And you've suggested, on average, it's about 18 months. Some people think it's a bit less, some people think it's a bit more. But there is that lag in the system. So if all you ever do, and this is pure, simple mathematics, if all you ever do is react to what the economy has done and ignore those lags, you're always going to get it wrong, aren't you? Because you're always at risk of either doing too much or too little. And the probability of you getting it right is vanishingly small. You've got to look forward. You've got to try and anticipate what is going to happen next as a result of what you did yesterday. Because if you don't do that, you're building into your control system. It's like an engineering problem when you're trying to to sort out what, what, what pressures to build into the system and whether or not they will actually lead to something going off or not. As an engineering control problem, they're setting themselves up for failure by only concentrating on current data. That's all I would say about that.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Um, The Bank of Japan um, left its short-term interest rate target unchanged, but it issued some nuanced language that um, you've got exercise about this morning.
0: Well, I don't like exercise. It's, it's relatively small um, in in the scheme of things, at least on the surface. But underneath, I think it, it's in keeping with this trend to tightening monetary policy uh, around the world. And in the peculiar monetary world that has been Japan now for decades, they've been practicing something called YCC, yield curve control. The yield curve is the uh, range of interest rates that are charged at different maturities, different time periods for government borrowing costs. And you can governments can borrow overnight or they can borrow for 30 years, or in some cases they can borrow for 100 years or infinitely, because sometimes there are undated bonds. And the, the constellation of interest rates along those different time periods is what we call the yield curve. Central banks in the West typically focus almost entirely on the short term interest rates, which is why we've been obsessing about the Fed funds rate this week and the ECB policy rate, which are all very short term interest rates. The Bank of Japan has been targeting the whole yield curve out from very short term out to the very long term. And this morning it changed one word in its guidance and you mentioned the importance of central bank language uh, earlier on in the pod and this is an example precisely of that the bank of japan has been targeting a 10-year borrowing cost for the government in japan of 0.5% for ages so that the bank so that the japanese government can borrow as much as it likes and only ever pay a half percent maximum on its borrowing costs for 10 years and it has previously described that as a rigid limit. And it changed that term, rigid limit, to reference this morning. Uh, non-market watchers would ask, well, what bloody hell is the difference? It is actually a big deal. And 10-year bond yields this morning have gone above uh, half a percent in Japan. And bond markets are one example out of many I could cite for my favorite mantra, which is everything is connected to everything else. And that's sent a little tremor through government borrowing costs all over the world, actually. It's little, it isn't major, but it is another example of the way in which government borrowing costs are going up as a result of what central banks are doing. And so that has uh, weakened Japanese equities. It's sent even US Treasury yields up a smidge. So these things, even though they seem T- tiny, minor, irrelevant to us sitting here in Europe, um, they are actually consequential. And I think that this is just part of that particular story.
1: What, what is um, really interesting and I guess very confusing from a central bank perspective is uh, the impact this interest rate tightening is having on economic activity. Uh, we've seen a number of um, economic growth releases um, relate to the second quarter uh, U.S. annualized growth was at 2.4%, up from 2% the previous quarter, and a market expectation of 1.8%. So generally a strong number. And within that, investment, business investment, particularly non-construction related, very strong. Um, consumer spending has slowed a bit, but still relatively strong. Um, and, and spending on goods is... Okay, weak-ish, but spending on services very strong, and I suppose this feeds into the whole um, narrative around. And we've been discussing the purchasing managers' indices and the way in which manufacturing is struggling, and service sector growth is still very strong, and that's been reflected in the U.S. growth number. So, bottom line is, despite all of the rate tightening the U.S. economy is proving remarkably resilient. And indeed, the Federal Reserve now believes that a recession will be avoided in the States. Um, In France, we also got strong growth in the second quarter, up by 0.5%. That's up from 0.1% the previous quarter. Um, Strong export performance, household consumption, um, a little bit weak, no surprises there given the impact of interest rates on the housing sector is probably most acute um in spain likewise we got a strong number growth up 0.4% strong domestic demand a key feature of that and the only outlier really in terms of the second quarter growth performance is germany flatlining 0.0 growth and and indeed um there there is a strong sense And I'm picking this up anecdotally more than anything else, but there's a strong sense of a strong mood of gloom in Germany at the moment. But most of the rest of the world actually doing quite well. And indeed, the International Monetary Fund published its latest economic forecast um, earlier this week. And uh, the, the headline really is that compared to its forecast in April it's revised up its global growth forecast this year by 0.2%. But within that, it it is kind of interesting to see that um, the advanced world, or the developed world, if you want to call it that, expected to grow by just 1.5% this year, 1.4% next year. Germany expected to contract by 0.3% this year, expanding by just 1.3% next year. And indeed, the United Kingdom, growth of 0.4 percent forecast this year and one percent next year so the developed world as such a pretty bleak forecast despite the upward revision to growth um so the emerging world really is where it's at and i guess if one was an investor in equities um One should probably be looking a lot more closely at what's happening in emerging markets than in the developed world. But yet developed world equity markets are still performing strongly. So, Chris, as we said in the last podcast, there's an amazing amount of confusion here. You see this dramatic tightening of monetary policy and yet economic activities proving pretty resilient in many countries.
0: Yeah, we've learned that the connection between interest rates and economic activity is not what we thought it was. And this actually relates to the comments that you and I were making just now about why central banks are no longer paying much, if any, attention to their own models, their own forecasts derived from their models of the economy, because they've discovered that they don't work, or at least they don't work in current circumstances. And I think that's the deeper lesson from this, which is that when you ask the question, what happens to economies and stock markets and inflation when you change interest rates, and when you ask more generally the question, what happens to X when you change Y, and you run it through these models, I think the answer is it all depends. And it all depends on current economic circumstances, the the circumstances that your economy is in at the starting point What's been happening in recent years? Is that is that re- reasonably familiar? Is it consistent with past data? Or is it something unusual? And we know, for example, that running our models now based on past data, our past data has never had to cope with a starting point, which was a pandemic. So I think that uh, we need to be very circumspect in what we're saying about the future at all times, but particularly when circumstances are very different. So I've, I've said all that many times in many different ways but we are learning some very deep truths about what's going on and the connection in particular it was to this discussion and your question really is what's the connection between interest rates and inflation i think the answer is at times it can be very very strong and at times it can be very very weak it all depends upon where, where you start this policy experiment from uh, there's a very well-known economist in the states, um, whose name I've just forgotten, but anyway, he's written a book called *The Fiscal Theory of the Price Level*, bit of jargon, in which he thinks that most inflation outcomes, and in particular this burst of inflation, has got nothing to, or very little to do with monetary policy and interest rates. It's got everything to do with the fiscal expansions that have been that went on during, in particular, the pandemic, and indeed in the United States, Joe Biden has continued with very, very large fiscal deficits. And I think he might well be right. John Cochrane is this guy's name. Very, very good economist. A bit right wing for my taste, but there we are. Well, and me then? Yes, right up your street, Jim. I thoroughly recommend him to you. The thing about Cochrane's book, The Fiscal Theory of the Price Level, which is very technical and I think an excellent work piece of economic analysis, is that I think he's produced quite co- it really could be the answer to what has caused the current inflation and why interest rates have been so poor at really doing anything about inflation is that it's all been fiscal rather than monetary. And that's uh, that's not a universal theory. I think Cochrane might say that that is always and everywhere the case and that his model has universal applicability. And I think that's the trap that many economists fall into. They try and build a theory of everything when if your answer is always going to be, it all depends, it's very hard to have a theory of everything and that you've got to always contextualise things. So it, it means that uh, the, the job of forecasting is next to impossible. We have to do it because of those lags in the system. But we have to, I think, be humble and always be aware that we're going to get it wrong. And the practical implication of that is that to to always have a plan for what we're going to do when we are seen to get it wrong. So if we, if we over egg the pudding on interest rates, what are we going to do if we don't raise interest rates? All that sort of stuff. Lots of contingencies, lots of scenario planning need to be built into the system rather than these central forecasts of, well, you know, we think inflation is going to go up, therefore we're going to put interest rates up now. That sort of thing, I think, is, is for the birds, Jim. Enough, enough economic theory. Move on to, the, <laughs> to our next topic.
1: Yeah, our next topic is a fascinating one, and that is AIB's half-year profits. Um, half-year profits surpassed total profits for last year. So AIB on the surface is doing very well, and I suppose there are no surprises there in the sense that the domestic economy here is strong. Uh, you know, b- business activity is healthy. The multinational sector is very healthy. The consumer is holding up. Spending is holding up. So generally... Um, You know, in the aggregate, it's a good economic story and banks benefit in that type of environment. Uh, But what's clearly driving this is what's happening on the interest rate front. Um, You know, we've discussed what the European Central Bank has done over the last 12 months, increasing rates by four and a quarter percent. And banks typically expand their profits and margins during a rising interest rate environment. But there was a story in the... Financial Times earlier this week. It was based on research carried out by Standard & Poor's looking at the extent to which banks in 22 countries passed on higher interest rates to their depositors. It's an amazing
0: story, Uh you Can know, I tell about, you You tell one half of this story and I'll tell the other half if I talk about the UK. and you Yeah,
1: I, I, I'll talk about the Irish half of this story. Of the 22 countries considered, European countries, uh, the United States in, is included as well, uh, but the Irish banks are the lowest of the 22. In other words, Irish banks have passed on the lowest percentage of the interest rate increases seen to their depositors. Um, And yet borrowing costs have been rising. So surprise, surprise, um, margins are widening. AIB's profits are very strong. So, you know, these profits are being driven at the expense of the consumers and businesses of the country. Um, It's usury.
0: Well, absolutely, Jim. And uh, I'm reluctant to use that term, but it certainly looks like it from the data that we're both looking at right now. There's a table in this report that has the UK as believe it or not the best banking market that has passed on the most interest rate rises to the country's savers which is a little ironic when you consider that the chancellor of the exchequer here has called in bank bosses to berate them for not passing on enough of the rises in interest rates to savers and this is all to do as you say with profit margins so the bank, a bank, is just like any other business. It has a cost of goods sold and the price of the goods that it then sells on. The difference between the two is the profit margin. The good in question, of course, is money. And the banks borrow money and then lend it. And its profit margin is the difference between the two rates. The rates that it charges its mortgages, credit card holders, overdraft holders, and all the rest of it. And the rate that it pays to get that money, which in many cases is nothing. Nothing. In, in Ireland, because current accounts, of course, pay nothing and savings rates aren't much bigger than nothing. The UK, as I say, astonishingly, given there's been a furore in, in the UK about bank profits, is the best banking market in Europe for passing on savings rates to customers. But the number is 43%. 43% of interest rate rises are have been passed on to uh, savers. Over the year to May, just gone. Now, 43% to uh, an ordinary punter such as ourselves, Jim, doesn't sound like a lot. It suggests that the banks are pocketing 57%, which they are. Hence, bank profits in the UK are going up. But the numbers are incredible for the rest of the world, well, the rest of the list of countries, as you say, it includes the US, the euro area as a whole. So remember, 43% is the number for the UK. For the euro area as a whole, only 20% of the interest rate rises by the ECB have been passed on to savers. So banks are pocketing 80%. Guess what the number for Ireland is? I think you know what the number is, so why don't you tell our listeners what that number is? Remember, 43% in the UK, 20% in the euro area. What proportion of interest rate rises has been passed on to Irish savers?
1: What is it,
0: around 7%? 7%. Yeah. So, and... There is a direct connection, as you say, with AIB's results. And the numbers buried within the results are quite extraordinary. AIB has got something like 31 billion euros of deposits that it simply parks in the vaults of the ECB. Those are deposits of Irish, uh, depo- you know, that this is essentially Ireland's money, the, your money, Jim, I'm sure. I'm one, could, yeah. A large proportion of that 31 billion is yours. It, puts, it takes it, pays you virtually nothing for it, and earns now, as a result of the ECB's decision yesterday, remember, everything is connected to everything else, AIB is now earning 3.75% on that money. And according to a report in the Irish Times this morning, that amounts to $1.17 billion of pure profit. Extraordinary. And so all of the numbers within the uh, re- report for the first half for AIB suggests that it's blowing the lights out with respect to its own projections of its own profit margins and its own overall profits. So uh, I, I'm not I'm astonished, as you were, Jim, that this hasn't been a much, much bigger story than Ryan Tuberty, for example. It deserves to be. It should be. But of course, in this crazy uh, upside-down media world that we live in, it almost seems to have gone under the radar. Has anybody in Ireland noticed this story?
1: Well, not to my knowledge, Chris, to be honest. Um,
0: yeah, it,
1: it's quite extraordinary.
0: Um, would you agree that it, it's a much bigger story than the RTE debacle? Uh,
1: of course it is. I mean, I mean, I I did a piece on our Substack about uh, my annoyance at politicians' grandstanding during those Oroctus hearings of RT, and there's more to come uh, of that, we can be sure. Uh, but the big issues are just being neglected by our political classes. And and this is certainly one. Um, and I, I guess, Chris, you didn't think you'd ever hear me say something like this. But um, the more I see about banking, the more I believe that benign state intervention is actually required. Um, I mean, I, I have argued for a long time. So this isn't something new for me that we really do need to revisit the old ACC model, sorry, the ICC model, the Industrial Credit Corporation, which was a state-run bank that financed SMEs in the main. Okay, so it was very much a small business bank. And um, that part of the banking market here is being totally neglected at at the moment, the SME sector. So I, I believe there is now a very strong argument to be made for Some sort of state-run bank targeting the SME sector, and also indeed targeting the personal sector that the two big banks clearly have zero interest in. And if you see the way those banks treat their ordinary customers at the moment, uh, you know it's 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 bad enough in this country trying to ring air, but it's now as bad to try and get through to your bank. You're on hold, and being passed around to various push-button areas of the bank uh, for long periods of time. Um,
0: Well, that's common here, Jim. I mean, most people I know... Of course it is. That doesn't make you good, though. Oh, no. The thought of ringing one of our utility companies or a bank, or indeed your doctor, means that you have to set aside most of a day to be on hold, to be in a queue, and it's just uh, a degradation of modern life. But your banks are in a classic monopoly situation where they can do pretty much what they like. And I think a normally functioning uh, banking market would have a lot more than two and a half banks in it, Jim. And I think the the, the case for state intervention is uh, unambiguous. Yeah,
1: and and that S&P analysis covered by the Financial Times, I mean, one of the points made there was that there is a strong correlation between uh, the extent to which higher interest rates have been passed on to depositors and the level of competition within the market. And Ireland clearly has amongst the lowest level of competition in its banking market of the 22 countries concerned. And as a consequence, just 7% of the interest rate increases have been passed on to depositors. Um, I'd like to see an octus committee next week addressing this issue, to be honest.
0: There's several ways you could address the issue. Um, good old-fashioned competition Uh authority legislation would, would sort it out in that if you've got two banks, then uh, there's a prima facie case for breaking them up and creating four or five banks. I mean, that's one way of doing it. Another way is to say, well, let's let's use modern technology. And let's give everybody, a, a rather than a, an account with AIB or Bank of Ireland, an account with the central bank. And the central bank can then park those deposits and earn the interest and then return the interest to the government if it wishes. Um or the central bank could offer um an account paying three percent because I don't think there are any savings accounts offering uh three percent uh to, to Irish savers at the moment, give the money back to the Irish people and it would still get 3.75% by parking it. So every everybody wins. There are uh, there's so many different ways. And if you then say, well who's going to do all the lending if all this is is parking money with the ECB, well that's where I think artificial intelligence comes in. And most lending decisions by banks are box ticking exercises by bankers these days. Uh, The old fashioned way of getting to know your customer and all that sort of stuff has gone out of the window, as many would be borrowing applicants would say, hand the box ticking over to the machine and just uh, say that we're going to do all the lending decision. The central bank will do it via an algorithm.
1: Um, Chris, my final parting comment on this relates to the remuneration of bankers and uh, there's been a strong campaign from the banking industry here that they need to lift the caps on earnings, particularly in AIB, which is still partly under state control, even though that state ownership has fallen significantly. Um, And the argument they're making is that to attract um, high caliber individuals to run these institutions, you need to pay market salaries. I mean, what sort of skill does it take actually to make money in the current Irish banking market?
0: Well, at the moment, not much skill, it must be said. Sure. But but to run any organisation in fairness, Jim requires certain a certain skill set. I certainly. Yeah, but
1: well, it. I'll say, Chris, when there was no cap on salaries, when bankers were paid extraordinary amounts of money, how did that
0: end? Agreed. Banks have not covered themselves in glory. Quite the opposite, in fact. And the, 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 I don't think anybody's got any sympathy for them whatsoever. But if you are going to plead for market salaries. I think that your plea falls on the the wording of that request, which is that you're not in a market. Exactly. You know, two banks is not a banking market. And no. so therefore, what is the right salary for a banker? If I was in charge, I'd say, OK, we'll allow you to pay whatever you like to your executives, but we're going to break you up. And the two of you are going to be, become four banks rather than two and maybe regionalize the banking system. I don't know, there are various ways in which it could be done. So if you want market salaries, we're going to create a market in banking. I can see the National Bank of Warford. Chief Executive or Chairman, non-Executive Chairman Jim Power.
1: Non-Executive Chairman, absolutely.
0: A million pounds a year? (laughs) (laughs) Sorry, Euros. I wouldn't get
1: out of bed for that. Listen, Chris, great talking again. Um, look forward to um, resuming our discussion next week. Cheers, Jim. You have been listening to Chris Johns and Jim Power on the other hand. We hope you enjoyed it. Our back catalogue of podcasts can be found on our Substack account, www.cjpeconomics.substack.com, or on podcast platforms such as Apple and Spotify. If you would like to listen to the podcast free of advertisements, you can sign up to our Substack account. Comments and feedback are much appreciated.
0: Small details are big surfaces. Tight corners are odd shapes. Flat, rounded, textured, or tall. Whatever your next project, there's a spray paint pattern that's just right. Because Rust-Oleum's new Custom Spray 5-in-1 gives you control with five different spray patterns so you can tackle nooks, crannies, edges, and curves without worrying about drips, runs, uneven coverage, or anything else. Custom Spray 5-in-1, only from rust Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything
1: Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear, and fine leather goods